And we're looking at some of the moments in the Gospel of John where Jesus interacts with people or groups of people and we're just watching to see what does he do, what does he say, why and how does he do and say it. And one of the important things I think just in the title of this series and what it means for us as we move through it is that when it comes to Jesus, it's always an encounter. Jesus isn't an ideal that we try to mimic and he's not uh, a concept that we try to master. He is a person that we interact with. That when we, when we encounter Jesus, there's an exchange. He's a person and we're a person. Um, there's always a meeting happening. Uh, but one of the things that becomes obvious in these encounters and these interactions and these exchanges is that regardless of who the person is, a blind man, a paralytic, a group of skeptics, whoever it is, um, the way that everybody in the Gospels approaches Jesus, the way that they come to Jesus is always based on what they think they need from Jesus. So the way that they come to Jesus, the way that they approach him is always determined by what they think they need from Jesus. And the same is true of us. When we come to Jesus, it's always determined by what do we think we need from Jesus. Um, Some of us approach Jesus thinking that we need a little more help being disciplined. Like my main problem is a lack of discipline. If I come to Jesus, he'll help me be disciplined. Or we come to Jesus and we think, I need Jesus to help me with a difficult life circumstance. Like the thing that I need is I'm in a bad spot and I need him to help me. And so we come to Jesus looking for a change in circumstance. Or we come to him thinking, Lord, I need, what I need is a good basis for morality in my family and keeping things in line. And so I come to you asking for help with that because that's what my need is. But as we move through all of these interactions with Jesus, we see that um, for whatever the reason, everybody comes to Jesus with an agenda. They come to him with their priorities and their expectations, um, their requests, and we assume, all of us assume that we know our needs and that yes, Jesus can meet them, but he can meet them in the way that we expect because we know what our needs are. And that Jesus often does meet the thing that people want from him. If they're blind, he often heals them. If they're paralyzed, he heals them. He answers questions. But he always does so within the context of saying, yes, you have this problem, but don't you see it's a symptom of something that's like 5,000 levels below the symptom? He's always less interested in what you think you need and more interested in what he thinks you need. And what we need is something he, only he can provide. So today in the passages we'll read, we're going to see that Jesus... Uh, what, Jesus, what we really need, how Jesus supplies it, and how we receive it. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you for your word, that we don't have to wonder what we need or how to get it because you speak to us. So Lord, would you speak directly to our hearts today, not just to our surface level and our behaviors, but what lies beneath our behaviors. So Lord, would you, um, would you convict us and forgive us? I pray this in your name, amen. So throughout John's gospel up to this point, we've seen Jesus rebuke explicitly or implicitly people who come to him with their priorities for their particular reasons. There's lots of places this happens. I'll just highlight a few. One is in John 5, verse 39 and 40. He's telling a group of people, you search the scriptures because you think that in them uh, you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. In other words, you come to the Bible looking for life, but you settled for the surface of Scripture, wisdom, rules for living. 
That's the surface without realizing that the life that comes from scripture comes from me. You've come here for your own particular reasons, but the thing that gives the things that you think you need any meaning comes from me. You think you need life and you're right, but it doesn't come from the wisdom and the rules, it comes from me. Um, Another place this happens is John 6, right after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, you come to me looking for life, but you've settled for the kind of physical life that comes from bread, from eating. But you've missed where the, even bread gets its meaning from. I am the bread. I am the bread of life. You're right, you do need life, but you don't need it from bread. You need it from me. And then in John 11, which is the section preceding the section we'll get into in a minute, um, which is the account of Lazarus' death and his resurrection by Jesus, and then we get the, after that happens, we get the reaction of the Pharisees and the chief priests. And I'll read this at length. Chapter 11, verse 45 is where we're starting. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but to gather in the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans put him to death. Now, a little context that helps us here. The Jews um, had earned at that time what nobody else in the Roman Empire had. If you were part of the Roman Empire, you had to worship Caesar. You had to offer, give offerings to Caesar. But the Jews had cre- caused so many issues and rebelled so many times that the Romans said, fine, you don't have to worship Caesar. You just have to pray to your God for Caesar. And so they had some degree of religious freedom. Um, And the Pharisees and the chief priests, they hear that Jesus has raised someone from the dead and their reaction is to protect their nation and their religious freedom. They've heard that someone, not just a guy who is dead for like an hour, a guy who is dead and buried for three days has come back to life and they're thinking, this is going to cause too much of a stir. People are going to go after Jesus. There's going to be a division in the country. The Romans are going to come in and tamp it down and we're going to lose our freedom. We're going to lose our nation. We have to figure this out. Their reaction is not to wonder at what has happened, but to be fearful. And even Caiaphas, the high priest, basically says, look, I already prophesied this guy's going to die for the nation. Why don't we move that along? Like if he dies now, then the whole nation can be saved. Their reaction is not to wonder at what has happened, but to protect what they think they need. In all of these encounters, The people who come to Jesus or talk to Jesus have correctly identified what they need, which is life. They need life, but they have mislabeled what kind of life they need. So in John 5, Jesus is telling people that they think they need wisdom and regulation that comes out of scriptures, but what they actually need is the kind of personal, transforming life that comes from the word of God himself, Jesus. You come to the scriptures thinking that you need help living. I tell you what you really need is the kind of relationship with truth itself that comes by knowing me. And that's where real life is found. In John 6, 
He's telling, you think you, the kind of life that you think you need, you think it comes from bread, knowing where your next meal is going to come from, but I'm telling you that you need something, you need the kind of sustenance that's even more um, important to life than that. You need the kind of bread that doesn't just renew your body, but actually transforms and renews your body and your mind and your spirit. You need something more than bread. You do need life, but you don't need the life you think. You need the life that comes from me. And in John 11, John is implying through, the, through context that the Pharisees and the chief priests think that they need life that comes from preserving their nation and the religious freedom, right? There's a certain kind of life that comes from freedom and protecting your country. But he's saying that is a thin layer at the top of the life that you really need that comes from me. You need life that has the power to raise the dead. And you're worried about protecting your country and your freedom. You need the life that comes from me. That is far more powerful than the life that you think you need. In other words, we think that the kind of life that will renew us physically, mentally, and politically is the kind of thing that we need. We need the life that's going to rejuvenate my experience right now and the things that I see that are problems in my life without realizing that what I really need is, again, 5,000 levels down from that. We think we have a cough, and Jesus is saying, you're about to die. Um, we prayed for, for Brian. You guys all know that Brian Fletcher um, had major heart surgery a few weeks ago, and he's doing great, and hopefully we'll see him back soon. But Brian went into the doctor that week um, because he'd been having some chest pains. He went in, they're like, well, let's check this out. He had 90 to 95% blockage in two major arteries and a third artery. And the doctor's like, I don't know how you're still alive, much less watching your grandkids and drinking coffee and cleaning up at pickleball on Wednesday nights. Like, I don't know how you are still walking. Um, and the next day, Brian was having heart surgery. Now, my guess would be that Brian went in hoping, like, I've got chest pain, and that's not good, but I'm still, like, functioning. So hopefully that means this can be solved with some medicine or um, some diet change, whatever. And when he gets in, they say, no, you need intervention right now. You're like a second away from death. I think most of us approach God thinking that we're mostly alive and we just need a little help. Just need a little bit of assistance, Lord, get me back on track. But Jesus is always saying, no, actually what you've got is way worse. You need major intervention because you're almost dead. You need to be fully renewed, not partially renewed. And so the question is, what do you think you need? In your life right now, what do you think you need? Do you think you need a circumstance change, or do you think you need the kind of change that's deeper than that? So what we need is life, but how, do you, how, do, how, do, how does Jesus supply that kind of real life to you? This brings us to our text that I really want to get into this morning, which is in John chapter 12, starting in verse 1. And it says, six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment, made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to whatever was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that, me sh that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. 
When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Now that's a dinner party. Um, What's going on in this scene? Um, I want to break down at least three things that I think are important and try to tie them together at the end of this point, which the first is there's some significant social norms being broken here. Um, First of all, the thing that I think stands out to all of us, which is that Mary comes to this dinner party with a bottle of ointment worth one year's wages. My translation says 300 denarii, but that's some translations do it the other way because that's what it is. It's a year's worth of wages for this ointment. Now, I don't know about you, but even today, if I went to a party tonight and someone brought any single item worth one year's wages, I would be so uncomfortable. I mean, even a low wage, if you showed up to a party tonight and someone had a $40,000 bottle of wine there and they're like, hey, here you go, I want you to have this, you'd be like, nobody move. Like, this is really expensive. Um, it would be, it'd be almost uncomfortable how expensive it was. Um, the second thing is that Mary lets her hair down and she wipes Jesus' feet, which N.T. Wright says, um, that's roughly the equivalent at a modern polite dinner party of a woman hitching up a long skirt to the top of her thighs. So maybe not the most scandalous thing that could happen, but certainly like, whoa, hey, what's going on here? Um, so it's just socially, this is odd. But the second thing is that Mary anoints Jesus. Now, what, what does that mean? In the Old Testament, anointment is um, pretty much exclusively um, used in reference to installing a prophet, a priest, or a king in office. So it's mostly with priests, but we see it with prophets and kings as well. It's when they're put in their office, they're anointed with oil on their head. Um, and some people say, well, that's what's happening here, but probably not for a couple reasons. One is that seems to have happened already to Jesus when he's baptized. And he's not anointed with oil, he's anointed with the Holy Spirit. And he's done, that's done by the Father, um, who has much more authority than Mary does. Um, And so that's probably not what's happening here, but we do, it's pretty clear what's happening here. One, because Jesus says, she's done this for the day of my burial. But second, she's done it. um, We know that in Jewish culture at the time, dead bodies were often anointed with oil um, or perfume. And not like the Egyptians would do it to embalm the body and preserve it. The Jews would do it to just keep the stink away, to be honest. Um, And we've told that the perfume has filled the house with the fragrance. And so what seems to be happening here is that Mary is anointing Jesus like a dead body, but he's still alive, but he's being anointed like a dead body. The third thing I want to pull together is it's at the beginning, it's happening in the background, but there's multiple therefores, unless you have the NIV, that link all of this back to what's said at the front, which is that this is happening right before Passover. Now what's Passover? Most of you know, but Passover is the celebration of the Jews Uh, mandated by Moses in Exodus 12 to remember God's grace during the 10th plague. Now the 10th plague, um, if you remember, is the, um, the, the death of the firstborn. So in Exodus 12, God says to Moses, I'm coming through Egypt tonight, me and the destroyer, whatever that means, and we are, every firstborn is marked for destruction, is marked for death. Um, unless, tell all the Jews, take a lamb, kill the lamb, paint blood on all the doorposts. And then, when we come through the country tonight, I will, the traditional translation is, is I I will pass over the house so the destroyer will not enter in. But a better translation actually is, in in the context of the verse and the word, is 
I will cover over the house so that the destroyer will not enter in. I will cover your house so that you'll be protected, that you'll be shielded. So the Passover is more like a cover over where the Lord shields the home from the destroyer. And that's happening in the background. So let me pull all these three together. Jesus anoint, uh, Mary anoints Jesus' body like a dead body at tremendous social and financial cost to herself. At the time of the year when, Il- when Israel celebrated the death of a lamb, shielding the nation from death. Mary seems to have put together that night what nobody else at the table understood, which is that Jesus was going to die. Not only was he going to die, he had to die. Not only did he have to die, he was dying to cover the people. Um, I saw, on Thursday night, I saw Les Mis for the first time at the Altria. I'd never seen the movies, never seen the plays. I'd watched a 60-second clip that told me what the play was about. I was pretty lost, I'm not going to lie. I think I got about 30% of the words from the songs. Um, but one part that is, that's pretty clear is um, Jean Valjean, the main character, is um, he's made a deathbed commitment to this woman who's a former employee to take care of her daughter. Um, and when he does that, so he's made this commitment to this woman's daughter, and then he finds out that um, there's a man who is convicted for the crimes that Valjean had done in his past, and that man's sentenced to be executed. And so he's got this, he's got this fork in the road. Where do, I, do I keep my commitment to this girl, or do I give myself over to the courts um, and not let this man die for my sins? He's struggling. He's like, well, that man is a criminal. He's done bad things. Why should I give myself up for him when I have this commitment? And ultimately what he does is he does show up at court, and he says, I'm Valjean. You don't want that guy. You want me. That's pretty much exactly what the Bible describes about us. Except, in our case, we are 100% guilty of the things that we're being lined up to be executed for. But Jesus shows up at court, and he says, I'm the one you want. Not him, me. I'll take the death he was going to have, he'll get the life that I have. That's what happens in Scripture. The destroyer is coming for you. I don't know if we know that. We are an inch away from spiritual and physical death all the time. And we live like we're not, but we are. The destroyer is coming, and you need a covering. You need a hiding place. You need a shield. What is that? Is it just kind of blind hope and that I think everything will be fine? Or is it the blood of Jesus painted over your heart? So we need life, and we get it from the death of Jesus. But how can we receive that? So Jesus gives life. It comes through his death. How do we receive that? Um, Let's turn back to the scriptures here. Um, Mary, the mother of Martha and Lazarus, is mentioned just three times in the Gospels. The first is in Luke chapter 10. Um, It tells the story of Jesus is at Martha's house. Again, they're having dinner. Jesus likes to eat. Um, And Martha is serving everybody. She's running around. She's cleaning up. She's making food. And Mary's just sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach. Martha gets fed up. She says, Jesus, why? tell her to help me. And he comes to Mary's defense and says, no. He says, um, she's chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. The second time she shows up is in John 11, when Lazarus has died, and Jesus comes to Lazarus' tomb, and Martha runs out and con- uh, confronts Jesus, says, you, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. 
and they have their exchange and Jesus calls Mary out and Mary runs out and she falls at Jesus' feet and says, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And that's when Jesus weeps, he's enraged and he raises Lazarus from the dead. And the third time is in our story tonight in John 12 where she's at Jesus' feet cleaning it, cleaning them with her hair. You might have noticed the common thread through those three. Whenever Mary is mentioned in the Gospels, she's at Jesus' feet. While the disciples and Lazarus are sitting next to Jesus at the table, she's at his feet. She's listening to him teach. She's laying at his feet requesting her brother back. She's anointing Jesus' feet. And on the other hand, we get Judas, who jumps in. Before Jesus even says anything, Judas jumps in and says, this is such a waste of money. Jesus wouldn't want this. He would have wanted you to spend this money on the poor. Give it away to the poor. And so unlike Mary, who's sitting, listening, receiving from Jesus, Judas jumps in and speaks for Jesus. He wouldn't have wanted this. He wants you to give it to the poor because that's what Jesus is about. And my guess is most of us approach Jesus like Judas. We speak for the Lord rather than Mary who listens to the Lord, who sits at his feet. Um, I've shared this story at youth group a couple times. It's unfortunately a very good encapsulation of who I am (laughs) and what's wrong with me. But um, I think this happened the summer after my... um, senior year of high school, I, a friend of mine invited a couple people over to his house to go cliff jumping into this reservoir near his house. So go over. I find out there's one other person I know there. And then there's four people who know each other from school where they go to with our mutual friend. Um, and our friend, we're at the house for a little bit. My friend leaves the room um, to go do something for a couple minutes leaving the rest of us there. Now, the friend I knew, she was the kind of person who was like, if I don't know anybody and they're not trying to talk to me, I'm fine, I can just sit here, which is not my personality type. And so I start trying to engage with these four people that I don't know. And um, they are giving me, so I'm asking questions, you know, how do you guys know each other? How, you know, what are you guys interested in? Normal conversation. And they're giving me like one word answers or nonverbal answers, like, yeah, no. And I'm like, uh, so I'm burning through questions, and I'm asking these questions, they're giving those answers, they're turning to each other and talking to each other, and they're kind of gesturing with their hands, and I am burning through questions like, please talk to me, I need some interaction. And I get through all my questions, I'm desperate, they're kind of mumbling, chatting to each other, and they're kind of looking down at their feet. And out of my mouth, I don't know where this comes from, I say, oh yeah, I double knot my shoelaces too. Don't know where that came from, but that came out of my mouth. The, the friend I had, she like choked a laugh. And she's like, oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> so that is who I am. I'm quick to speak and I'm slow to listen. Um, fortunately, not everyone in this room is like that. Some people are very quick to listen. Um, but I think in our relationship with the Lord, all of us are quick to speak. We're all quick to come to the Lord with our needs, our requests, Um, our expectations, the things that we think we really, really need. But the only way to understand the true depth of your need and the solution that God provides is to be at the feet of Jesus, listening, taking in, setting aside our agendas and saying, God, I don't know what I need. Tell me what I need. 
give me what I need that I don't even know that I need. The Bible has a word for this. It's called faith. Faith is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Faith is the act where we lay down our diagnosis and our proposed cure and hear what he, he has to say. Where we get off spiritual MD and stop typing in our symptoms and think, I think this is what I've got. And we say, no, Lord, you're the doctor. You tell me what's wrong with me. Because my symptoms are on the surface and there's things going down on underneath that I don't even know about that are darker than I could have, I could have guessed. Without faith, you're always going to have a small God because you're going to diagnose yourself and your problem's only going to be about this big, which means you need a God that's only about this big. But if you have faith, if you sit at the feet of Jesus, you'll find out that your need is a bottomless pit and God is far greater than you could have imagined. Tim Keller says that the gospel is that you are more sinful and flawed than you ever dared believe, but you're more accepted and loved than you ever dared hope. That's true. When we come to the Lord at his feet, we're able to understand just how deep the need is and just how great the Lord's love is for us. So we are all born, I think, what original sin is, is that we're born with staring God down, looking God in the eyes and saying, you don't know what I need, I know what I need. When we were made to have our heads pointing down at the feet of Jesus, knowing that the best that I have to offer my beautiful clean head, the thing I protect above all else, is not worthy even of your lowly feet. We're born staring God down and what we need is to look at his feet and say, but if you're really a God at all, why would I know anything about what I need? If you're any kind of God that's worthy of my worship, if you're any kind of God that's not greater than my imagination, why would I, why would I ever tell you what my problem is? Why would I ever not listen to what my problem is? It's only when we approach him in that way that we'll see the height of God's grace. Um, when I was in college, our campus minister shared a story with us that I never really forgot. Um, he said one night he got a call from a young man in the chapter, said, hey, I need to come talk to you now. He said, okay, come on over. And so he came to his house and they sat down and CJ, the campus minister, said, um, the young man proceeded to tell him about a lot of sin in his life. He'd been sleeping with women and lying about his intentions and ghosting them, never calling them back, never getting in touch with them again, doing this over and over and over again. Finally, the, the, the weight of the guilt and shame had caught up with him. And so he's in CJ's house that night. He's, he's sharing all of this. It's like, what do you do when someone does that? If someone comes to you and tells you that, do you say, yeah, that's not good but Jesus loves you and we're gonna try better. So he's like, that's not what I said. I told him, look at me. The person who did those things is you. Nobody forced you. You're not a victim of circumstance. You did those things. And that is the person that God loves. He said, I don't know, but I think the spirit of God came on him that night where he realized, I mean, up until that moment, that, that young man's God was small. He thought his need was only about this big, so he only needed a God at about this big. But that night he looks into the void and sees, oh my gosh, I am broken. The things that I did, they're not just behaviors, they're not just on the surface, it came from within me. I have brokenness all the way to the core, from places that I don't even know where it came from. 
But that's the person God loves. He didn't, he didn't, he was not um, unaware of what he was buying when he purchased salvation. He knew exactly what he was doing. So if we continue to come to Jesus on our terms, we're never really going to understand that Jesus had to die. You might understand why he had to die for other people, but you'll never understand why he had to die for you. But if you approach Jesus at his feet, which is faith, say, Jesus, I come to you. I don't know what my needs are, but you do. I know I need life. I know it comes from you. Please give it to me. If you come to him that way, you will see just how massive his grace is for you. It's better than you thought. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that we don't, we don't have to be in control of anything in our life. God, you are sovereign over all things, and I'm grateful for that. And you're sovereign over even understanding what our deepest needs are and what we what solution we need. God, I pray for everyone in this room that we would, um, we would know the depths of our sin and the heights of your grace. That we wouldn't, we would not any longer stare you down and say, you don't understand me. You don't know what I need. You think I'm worse than I am. Or you just don't get what happened to me. That we would be able to bow our feet down and say, but you're a good God who's laid his life down for me. How can I help but trust you? So I pray that everyone in this room would know that, Lord. They would put their faith in you today. I pray this in your name. Amen.